morning, everybody. If I haven't met you yet, uh, my name is Reese Neeland, and I'm one of the, uh, the ministers here in the uh, church here. Actually, uh, today like I'm serving as your spiritual tour guide. I call it timber. We're, uh, we're going to get into the, uh, the scriptures here, the Bible, the Word of God, in just a moment. Go ahead and look over to Ephesians chapter 1. How would you say? And I'll give you a little time to find that. If you don't have a Bible with you, hopefully you can look off somebody else, but I believe as well. Technology cooperating. Uh, the scriptures that we're going to read today are going to be on the screen behind me as well. But uh, today we are starting a new series entitled "Be Rich." Now I think I should clear something up right away. Uh, we are not one of those churches that necessarily believes. That just because you follow Jesus, you're going to have a lot of money, more money, or become rich. In fact, some people have said that if you join our church, you're going to have less money. <laughs> some of us have been around for many years. I mean, it's kind of alright. We just had the contribution, right? So it kind of works in like, well, if I'd have kept what I gave. I might not be rich, but I would have more than I otherwise would. And certainly that is true. But perhaps you figured out already, we're going to talk about, let's just call it true riches. We're going to talk about things that are maybe, well, no doubt, more important than how much money we have in our bank accounts. We're talking about richness in life, about an experience in life. Have you ever felt like there was something missing in your life? Have you ever felt like no matter how good things are going or have gone, and maybe even it's mostly obvious to us when things are really going well, and we're left with this nagging feeling, and perhaps it's even more than just a nagging feeling. Perhaps it's a very obvious feeling of disappointment and feeling let down because something or some situation or a life that we're living we thought would result in great fullness, great richness of life, and we're left feeling like there's something missing. There's got to be more. To life. Certainly that's why uh, that really in, in a good sense led a lot of us to decide to follow Jesus, didn't it? We were following a path of life and maybe it was a religious path of life or maybe it was not but that life was not it was not fulfilling us. There was something missing and so it made us take another look at where we were going and perhaps enabled us to take another look at God. The good news is God wants us to be rich. God wants us to experience fullness of life. Where are you today? Do you feel rich today? Even as a Christian, and I realize that most of the people in this audience, certainly not everybody, but most of the people in this audience 
have already made your decision to follow Jesus. And it may have been recently or it may have been many years ago. Some of us, we describe our decision to follow Jesus and how long ago it was in terms of decades. I'm looking at you, college students. Looking at you, youth ministry. A lot of you here, your parents are in the church, they decided, they made the decision to follow Jesus a long time ago, perhaps before you were even born. And there are a lot of us like that. Right? You ever felt, do you feel even today like there's something missing in your life? Don't answer too quickly. Because I believe even in a church like ours, which is mostly good, did you get that qualifier? You can still, if we're honest with ourselves, if we're real, we can experience this nagging sense of emptiness and disappointment that there's something more. Surely there's something more than what we're experiencing. What if we could find this true fulfillment? Wouldn't we be rich? Wouldn't that be worth more than any amount of money or any possession that you could buy with whatever wealth, worldly wealth you had? You could experience that. Wouldn't we have something to show something to give to other people of real value. Be rich. Well, there was a letter written some 2,000 years ago. And that's before any of us were born. That's going to help us. We're going to look at that. And uh, we call it the Ephesian letter, by the way. Uh, there's a handout that you may have received when you came in. You don't need it right now. If you didn't get that, you can pick one up at the guest services table in the foyer or one in the front. We'll make those available not just this week, but in the weeks to come. It kind of introduces our series, gives us a little more specific context and background to the things that we're looking at, the things we're studying. Uh, by the way, there's also a bulletin today. We're a church that tries to minimize announcements. We figured you don't come to church to hear announcements. Yep. Uh, there are important things going on, but those are in the bulletin. Uh, take a look at those. Those are available in the front and the back as well. Ephesians. Let's read the uh, first two verses of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This letter was written by a man named Paul. He is described as an apostle. Now, uh, I understand that that might not mean anything to a lot of us. That's not a title that we usually give today. But certainly in today's terms, he would be a full-time minister. He would be a uh, pastor. He would be an evangelist. What Paul was, he was kind of a special agent for Jesus. 
But we read about him a lot in the book of Acts, which is a record of the uh, of, of some of the church growth in the first 30 years of Christianity. Paul's a big part of that because he's going all over, traveling all over that part of the world, what was then known as the Roman Empire, and he was setting up churches. He was starting churches. He was ministering to churches that sometimes already existed, but many times he was actually starting churches. In the book of Acts, it records that he went on at least three missionary journeys where he wasn't gone for a week or two. He was gone for months and years at a time. As we're reading here, it's about 30 years since Jesus had lived and walked on the earth. So in one sense, it's been a while. In another sense, they're just sort of, Christianity is just sort of starting out. He's writing to this church in the city of Ephesus. And it'll help us a little bit if we understand a little bit about Ephesus. Ephesus was on the western coast of modern-day Turkey. It was a, a very important city. It was actually the third largest city in the Roman Empire. Did you know that? Uh, right behind Rome and Athens. That gives you an idea of how important it was. It was on the coast. And it had great highways. So it was a center of commerce and trade. It was a wealthy city. It was a diverse city. Cosmopolitan city, uh, some would even say it would be, in modern day terms, a city like Los Angeles. And uh, that may seem a little odd to you because I just described Ephesus as a wealthy city. And you're thinking, I live in Los Angeles and I am not wealthy. <laughs> but surely you understand, if you travel at all, you understand that in a relative sense, Los Angeles is a wealthy city. Now, it is true that most of the other people have got the money. Most of the other people. But it's out there, isn't it? How many neighborhoods do we have to drive through? I mean, that was one of the first things we moved here at Atlanta Church in 1989, 25 years ago. The first thing I noticed was two things I noticed, even when I, as I left the airport. First of all, how many lanes there were on the freeway? Are you kidding me? Five lanes going in one direction, full of cars. But you know what I noticed? It wasn't just how many cars there were, was it? It was what kind of cars they were. Listen, if you travel anywhere else in the world, I'm telling you, people in Los Angeles at least have enough money to buy some nice cars. Again, it's not the car you're driving. <laughs> it's certainly not the car I'm driving. But going down the highway, Jaguars, BMWs, Mercedes, Rolls Royce. I had never seen a Rolls Royce before I moved to LA.
is that Paul wrote this from prison. You say, well, that's kind of scary. What did Paul do to get himself into prison? Well, he was actually there not because he'd committed a crime, not because he'd stolen money from the church, not because of any of the other reasons that we sometimes hear some Christian ministers today get in trouble for. He was in prison directly because of his faith. And this was a constant issue because in the Roman Empire, one of the ways that they made control and take control of all these people that they had conquered is they had this thing called emperor worship. And the emperor of Rome, it was expected that you would worship him as if he were God. That's scary, isn't it? So if they didn't enjoy the freedom of religion that perhaps we enjoy in our part of the world today, even though we do know, don't we, that in there are some parts of the world today where you can be persecuted for your faith, Somebody close the doors to the outside there. Thank you. You can be persecuted for your faith today. You could land in prison. You could even be harmed, perhaps even killed for your faith today. Thankfully, that's not America. But he's in prison for his faith. Some other things you need to understand about Paul as he writes this. All this is going to help us with our sermon today. In case some of you didn't know, you're wondering where I'm going. You're bad-hearted, and you need to have a little trust. Have a little trust in God, have a little trust in me. When Paul writes this, he is about somewhere around 60 years old. He's been a Christian for a long time. He has been single now for many years. Now, it seems obvious that one time he was married, but really the entire time that he's a Christian... In all these years of going around, decades of planting churches and all, it seems like he was single the entire time. So let's, let's try to picture this now, right? You're about 60 years old. Some of you don't have to imagine hard to know that. Just a few of you. I'm looking at you, Jeff Powell, but for no particular reason. You're about 60 years old. You once were married, but now you've been single for several decades. I don't know why Paul never remarried. Certainly he could have. He was alone often. The Bible says he was deserted often. And as he writes this, he's in prison. He suffered much for his faith. At different times, he's been shipwrecked. He's been flogged. He's been beaten. He's been stoned. He's been left for dead. And now here you are and you're in prison. And you decide to write a letter. What's going to be in your letter? Right? What if what Paul's got on his mind? You know, I think I relate to it a little bit better. I, I, I wanted to say that I am not 60 yet. My wife insisted I tell you that. <laughs> Even though I'm closer than I've ever been before. <laughs> That's true of every one of you. But think about it. Think about it. Stay with me. But even in all that, you know, I, I understand because today, even at, at my relatively young age, 
When people ask me how I'm doing, I immediately start thinking about all the parts of my body that don't work the way they ought to. <laughs> and you know, when my parents, Mary Kay and I were talking about this the other day, when I was growing up, my parents reached a certain age, and it seemed like every conversation that we had centered around their health. And which body part wasn't working like it should be. Right? And now I realize that I have become that person. <laughs> well, I'm trying anyway. But that's my first thought, is how am I feeling? I don't want to discourage you or you. But as you get older, stuff stops working. Pain becomes a part of your everyday life. Advil becomes your best friend. <laughs> so surely Paul is going to say something. He starts to write these people. And he was good friends with these people. You know, I'm sure he felt like he could be open with them, right? He'd been there for three years. That was actually the longest period of time that Paul spent, as far as we know, biblically, that he was in any one place. It was in Ephesus for three years. So he was good friends with these people. You know when he writes this letter, he doesn't mention any of that stuff. He barely mentions that he's in prison. Three different times, the references are in your handout, we won't go over them. He just casually mentions, I'm a prisoner for, for the Lord, I'm in chains for the Lord. You know, if it was me, I'm trying to put myself. That, that's what I always tell people. If you've been here in church before, the way to really get the most out of the Bible is to put yourself in the story. Yeah. If I'm writing this letter, I may be trying to be positive, but I got a few things to complain about. <laughs> right? I need some prayers. Lord, be nice if you could get me out of this prison. Lord, it would really be nice to find a good woman. Don't laugh at that, Marcel. You're married. You know what I'm talking about. Marriage is a blessing. Did you not know that? He's getting himself into trouble. That's what they all say, Marcel. I didn't do anything. That's the first thing every husband says when his wife wants to talk to him about something. I haven't done anything. Marcel's got a lot to learn with. He's not. He's not where he needs to be. But here's the thing. And actually, Paul, Paul wrote four of these letters from prison. Now, you don't need to know this to get into heaven. But the four were Ephesians, Colossians, Philemon, and Philippians. And the one thing that's remarkable about all these four letters that made it into the Bible that Paul wrote is in all of them, he's not complaining about his situation. He barely even mentions his situation. In spite of the challenges that he is facing, in spite of the life that he has lived for the last 30-some years, and all the suffering, he is full of joy and zeal and passion and excitement about his faith. That's remarkable, isn't it? Yeah. 
And we see the same thing here in Ephesians. See, this is true wealth. Anybody here today live in less than ideal circumstances? I know all of you wish that you didn't have a test next week, but you do. Or you don't have homework due tomorrow. But we all face challenges. They may last a long time. They may be just ones that you're going through right now. But this is the secret. If there's a secret to being rich in life, it's figuring out how to live in the midst of your challenges and my challenges, whether it be health or money or relationships or whatever it is, and be able to rise above that and live a fulfilled life. Are you with me there? Fulfilled in spite of the circumstances. We need to learn from Paul. And that's why we're going to be studying this, looking at this letter that Paul wrote. We're going to be learning. I thought of a, uh, a movie reference. It's a movie from about 25 years ago, and perhaps for obvious reasons that some of you will understand, I'm not going to refer to the specific movie or the specific scene. Interesting to see how many of you get this. But in a spiritual sense, I'm like the person at the restaurant that sees Paul ordering dinner and says, I'll have whatever he's having. <laughs> That's what we need to learn from Paul. Whatever he's got going on is what I want in my life. Because the truth is, I'm knocked down, depressed, discouraged, about much less than his challenges, perhaps. Yet he maintained this, this sense. So, what follows is quite incredible. Let's begin reading again. In verse 3 through verse 14. And uh, I'm sure you're not going to be surprised, but this is a two-part sermon. <laughs> Now, you're only going to get the first part today, so I know that's, that should be encouraging to you. We're going to finish up next week, Lord willing. All of you need to come back. We're going to look at this next part of the scripture in, in, in more in detail. Verse 3 through 14. But today, we're just sort of looking at it is an overview, and I think even looking at an overview, there's something very powerful to learn about Paul, something that we can learn from him. It says in verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ, 
in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches, there it is, be rich, in accordance with the riches of God's grace, that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one hand, even Christ. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked with a seal of the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing your inheritance, our inheritance, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. After Paul says hello, the first thing that he speaks of is how overwhelmed he is in his heart about God. Do you see that? His heart burns for God. It overflows about God. Not just about his life. Not about his life about the heart that he has for God. You may or may not know this. In the original Greek language, and this was the oldest manuscripts we have, what we read here in English is translated from Greek. This verse 3 through verse 14 is one sentence. One 200-word sentence. And what we also know, because Paul mentions frequently, is that he didn't handwrite his letters usually. He dictated them. So what we're reading here was probably written down by somebody else, and Paul is standing or sitting, or I imagine him walking around the room, and he says, here I am in chains. Here I am in prison. You know, none of that matters. The thing I most want to tell my friends in the church in Ephesus, what I most want to remind them about is how great God is. And so he starts talking. And he's so excited he doesn't stop to breathe. You know, we've met people that gave us a 200-word sentence before, haven't we? They're so excited and they're so overwhelmed that they just start talking and you're waiting for them to take a breath. And you're waiting for a period on this sentence. And you just get commas. And dashes and semicolons. And they just keep going. Because they can't help themselves. This is a volcanic. 
eruption of praise and gratitude for God. Many people describe these verses, and that's why we're going to spend at least two sermons on it. Some of you are bad heart. I don't know what you're thinking already. No, it might be two more sermons. Because what we're going to do is we're going to come back. We're going to break it down. We're going to look at all the reasons why we can be excited about God. We don't have time to do that today. By the way, I was doing some research on Ephesians. How many of you know who John Calvin is? Quite a few people. But anyway, um, he's one of the great theologians and preachers of the Protestant movement. When they broke away from the Catholic Church and they started taking the Bible out to the people and they started preaching uh, not just religion but the Bible, John Calvin. I found out that John Calvin, we have it, did a sermon series on Ephesians. 48 sermons. I'm saying that to encourage you. We're not going to do 49. Actually, I don't know yet. God hasn't told me. But anyway. Many people describe this little section of scripture here, whether you know it or not, as one of the most beautiful, eloquent sections of the entire Bible. <coughs> Certainly it doesn't tell you everything about how great God is. But there's enough there to get you started, isn't there? And I just picture how this overflows from Paul's heart. Be rich! The main point today, we can all be rich if we let God into our hearts. If we can be like Paul and we can figure out how to let God into our hearts. We can live life to the full like Paul did. It's as simple as that. It's not all there is to it, but it's the best place to start. How about we start with God? What's the secret, Paul? Even after many, many years have passed to keep God in your heart. You know, if you're a, a follower of Jesus today, I bet you're like me. We all started with God. Can we agree on that? We became followers of Jesus because we were living a certain way and we grew frustrated and we felt emptiness and even though we may have been in church and even though we may have been religious and even though we may have even claimed to be a believer in Jesus, we saw something was missing. And the reason that we're excited about following Jesus is not just because of the life that we left behind, but because of the opportunity we had to start over again with God. We all start with God. But can we be honest about who we are 
as human beings, we have short attention spans. We lose interest sometimes, quickly. We start with God and then over time we move on. And eventually we never intended to be there, but we become these people who even though we're still in the church and we're still regarded as faithful Christians and we're still committed, we have no room for God in our hearts anymore. We put God on the sidelines. And you know when we call on God? For emergencies only. A lot of us, we, we somehow got the impression it's worse with time where we feel like, I, you know, most of this Christian life thing, I can handle it myself. Now, I knew in the beginning it was all about God, but now... You know, most of this I can handle myself. If it's really bad, if I get in an emergency, then I can call on God. You know, people all over the world are asking a question that's an important question. What is wrong with Christianity today? I can see why they ask that, don't you? You look at all the things that are done and said, are not done and not said in the name of Christianity across the world? Why are we surprised that the world is not watching? That the world is not following? The world doesn't care? What's wrong with Christianity today? What's wrong with Christianity in our church? What may be wrong with Christianity in your life or in my life? It may just be that there's not enough God. We no longer, our hearts no longer explode simply because we're not focused there. We stop looking at God. We're spending way too much time looking at each other. Let me tell you, that can be very discouraging. Am I right? You're spending way too much time looking at people like me. That can be really discouraging. Ask my wife. Ask my children. Perhaps a lot of us, you know, we're still looking for the perfect church. Don't have any good news for you there. You know the best thing that I can say about our church? We are extraordinarily ordinary. There's not enough God in our faith sometimes. When there's not enough God, we sometimes don't even see it. And I'm trying to wake you up a little bit today. There are sometimes unintended consequences. Our own faith gets dry and stale and boring. You felt like that? 
feel like that today? We wonder why our kids don't become Christians. Maybe it has something to do with they don't, their parents don't seem to have a heart for God. Well, I didn't say they didn't come to church. You know, there's an entire... You can come to church. You can be committed to come to every service of the church. Today's sermon is not really about coming to... That you need more church. Now, you may need more church. But that's not the sermon today. It's about you need more God. There are unintended consequences. We wonder why we don't share our faith. Why we don't want to share our faith. Or we don't share effectively. You cannot share what you do not have. We need more God. I say that about you and I say that about me. There are unintended consequences. You know, uh, one of my favorite sets of uh, commercials these days is, uh, I believe it's Direct TV. And the, the theme is, there's several of them, get rid of cable. Get rid of cable TV, have you seen those? And one of my favorites is, it starts out and there's different scenes that says, when you call your cable company and they don't answer the phone, you get frustrated. When you get frustrated, your daughter sees your example. When your daughter sees your example, she gets kicked out of school. When your daughter gets kicked out of school, she starts hanging around with undesirables. When she starts hanging around with undesirables, she marries an undesirable. And when she marries an undesirable, you get a grandson with a dog collar. And the tagline is, don't get a grandson with a dog collar. Get rid of cable TV. But see, the point should be clear. When our faith is not about God in our hearts, there are consequences. Honestly, some of us need to wake up today. When God is in your heart, the Bible and prayer and church and sharing your faith takes a whole different, there's a whole different view. You understand what I'm talking about? The Bible is not just a book to be read. It's not just a textbook to be studied. It's not just where you go to find the best information about God. The Bible is a chance to listen to the voice of God. The Bible is a chance to get to know God. What is prayer? Prayer is not a Christian duty. It's not something that you have to do whether you like it or not. It's not just where you need to go because you want something. When you have God in your heart, prayer is an opportunity to have a conversation with God. To praise God. To express gratitude to God. You know, when our prayer life degenerates into we only pray and we mostly pray, about things we want or think we need. Have we not lost the essence 
of what our faith is supposed to be about. God in our hearts. If God is in your heart, it's not just a church service. It's an opportunity to worship. Do you understand there's a difference between a church service and a worship service? And you know who decides the difference? You do. Church services are not just obligations. Well, you know, when I got baptized, I said I'd be committed to all the services of the body. So here I am, 25 years later. God help me, I'm still showing up. Unless I can figure out a good reason not to be here. And I've become extremely creative with that as years have gone by. I'm getting better and better in it all the time. I wonder which answers work, which ones don't. Truth is, if I had a way, if I could choose, I would not be here. It's just a church service for you. You know, we used to call our meetings on Sunday worship service. We still call them that, but are they really? Well, why do we sing in church? Isn't that one of the five Christian requirements? <laughs> church, prayer, communion, sermon, fellowship break, is that in there? Anyway. <laughs> The reason we have a song service is to give you the opportunity to shout and sing about what God is in your heart. And the reason we come together is so we can encourage each other with that. See, it makes all the difference in the world if God is in your heart. If God is not in your heart, well, I'm coming on Sunday, even though I'm not happy about it. But I ain't coming any other time. And really, I hope you understand, it's not about, we don't really need more church. I mean, we need all the church we have. Okay? But we need more God! Sharing your faith. Well, yeah, you know, when I counted the cost before I got baptized. We read Matthew 28. It said I had to go into all the world. <laughs> I made disciples. I teach them everything I know. Right now I don't think that's much. But anyway. <laughs>
give to you. I said earlier, you could join this church, you probably got less silver and gold. But anyway, we give. Yeah, that's one of oh, that's one of those things. We gotta do that. I have to tie. <laughs> now does that mean 10% of my gross or 10% of my debt? <laughs> or does that mean 10% at all? You're asking all the wrong questions. Because when you got God in your heart, you're going to sacrifice and you're going to give as much as you can and you're not going to limit it. You're going to be generous. You know what we need? We need more God. We can be rich. We let God into our hearts. You know, uh, this is something I'm very excited about working on in my own life. And I think I've gotten a good start this year, but I, I need to keep going further. And I'm, I'm really excited that we're going to be looking at Ephesians. And I, I'm excited for the opportunity to learn from Paul. I'm really excited about the grace of God. If it weren't for God's grace, you'd have to find somebody else to preach. So I'm, I want to do this, but you know what? I want my faith to be way more about God than it has been. Because that's where Paul was. One sentence, 200 words, volcanic eruption, a phrase of gratitude. You know what all this that Paul wrote, he didn't ask them, he did not give them a single command or even make a suggestion to them of anything that they needed to do. What I say, he says, let's just take a little time and let's just think, let's just reflect on God. The greatness of God. What have we all, what have we all this year focused more on God? What do we maybe find, rediscover something that we once had that we perhaps have lost? So I have one, uh, one assignment for you. Just something that I, an exercise that I think might be helpful. And there's two parts to this. The first part is, every day between now and next Sunday, we're going to go back, I want you to take some time in your relationship with God just to read through Ephesians 1, verse 3 through 14. And just, just let it marinate a little bit. Let it sink in. Pray about it. Pray through it. Meditate on it. Remind yourself of how great God is. And the second part, this is very artsy. How many of you guys in here are artsy? There you go. The artsy people here are going to love this assignment. The rest of you, not so much. But anyway, think about you, Kevin. But anyway, I don't know. Now, you know, we've got, we got Valentine's Day coming up on Friday. One of the wives just clapped. <laughs> she's happy that her husband was reminded in church. <laughs> and he got an elbow along with her. She's, she's a good woman. She's saved by grace. 
here's what I want you to consider doing. You know, I told you this was a 200 word, write your own Valentine's Day card to God. 200 words, about 200 words. I'll give you, a, no more than 200 words. I know Kevin, you want to write a lot more than that. But this is, if we want to call it, this is Paul's one sentence, 200 word Valentine's Day card to God. Write your own Valentine's Day card. You don't have to share it with anybody else. You can if you want to. You don't have to do it. But here, why, why am I suggesting this? I want us all to, do, to, to take some steps to try to get our faith to be a lot more about God. And who God is. And the greatness of God. Amen, church. Amen.